Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. For millions of fans, the 1985 Chicago Bears were more than a football team. They were the greatest football team ever, a gang of colorful nuts dancing and pounding their way to victory. This was the first NFL team to really cross over to become pop stars. And their ascent marks the beginning of the modern game. Bears and former BYU quarterback Jim McMahon was the first athlete to appear on the cover of Rolling Stone, for example. For his new book, Monsters, the 1985 Chicago Bears and the Wild Heart of Football, Rich Cohen tracked down players and asked them everything you ever want to know, including what happens when you're 28 and you've already lived your dream? How do you find meaning? How do you contribute when you're old and your speed is gone? And Cohen says he came away with a map for how and how not to live. He says that a football player like McMahon teaches us how to get old and even how to die because football players die twice. The 1985 Bears are also at the center of the concussion crisis. No defense was nastier. None knocked out more quarterbacks. Dave Dorson was on this team. He was a player who, fearing he had CTE, shot himself in the chest two years ago. Jim McMahon, the quarterback and leader, has also become a head trauma poster boy. Dakota trusts the question of what happens to the legacy of a team built around the knockout blow and the values of the game are rewritten. Rich Cohen joins us for Access Utah today. Welcome back to the program. Uh, thanks for having me. We talked about sugar last time. Yeah. Um, so you, you have diverse uh, tastes and opportunities as a writer. Well, I like sugar and I like football. So <laughs> There you go. Two uh, good things in life. You grew up in Chicago. Uh-huh. And uh, about the time, 1985, you're 17 years old. So it's prime time to, to, to really be a fan of, of this iconic team. Yeah, I feel like almost a football team or sports team is something you can love you know, early that's small enough, it's like loving your country, except it comes first because it's a group of guys, you got your colors, you got your uniform, and you come to completely identify with them from such a young age, you're stuck with them. So if they never win, you go through kind of misery your whole life. My father was from Brooklyn, and he uh, grew up with the Brooklyn Dodgers, and he ended up in Chicago where I was born, and he used to always beg me not to be a Cubs fan or a Bears fan, and he said a Cubs fan will uh, have a bad life. Because he'll accept losing as a natural order of things, and we'll think all work ends in futility and ruin. And, of course, I couldn't help it. I became a giant Cubs fan and a giant Bears fan. And finally, in 1985, after slowly ascending, the Bears blossomed into what I think is the greatest team in the history of the NFL and had one of the most exciting seasons in the history of American sports. Yeah, I, I, I understand the, the part about futility. My father was a Cubs fan. He grew up in Wyoming and Idaho, but he was a Cubs fan. So, and, and never in his entire life, born in 1918, never saw a championship. So that's... Uh, well, 1908, I once saw a kid at Wrigley Field that had a shirt that said Chicago Cubs World Champions in really big letters and in little tiny letters, 1908. Yeah, yeah. That's, uh, the Red Sox have, uh, have uh, exercised their curse, not the Cubs. I guess that might come in the future. I want to talk a bit about the, the violence in the game. And you, you, you write about this. You, versus baseball, you say there's something dark about football. Yeah, well, fo- pro football specifically, this, the Bears team was interesting to me because it was put together by George Hallis. George Hallis started the NFL. He was a great Bears player. He started the team, and he, be, and he was still around. And he hired Ditka and set all the pieces for 85 in place. And at the beginning, pro football, unlike college football, really came out of little grim coal towns, mill towns, and factory towns in western Pennsylvania and in Ohio. And it was a rough, violent life. And that all, all that was in the game. You know, and the game was a way, it was a natural outgrowth of how a lot of people lived. And now, you know, the Bears culminated with this team that sort of had this idea that they would um, win by basically knocking out other teams' quarterbacks. That was the 85 Bears. It was exciting. It was called the 46 defense. But what we know now, you have to really say, oh, my God, what was really going on there? Um, Doug Plank, who was number 46 and gave the defense its name and was himself from Western Pennsylvania, said to me that their strategy was, we're going to get to know your second quarterback today. And the yeah. idea was a quarterback was so important, why chase 10 players all around the field when you can just kill one? And that's, that's incredible to think about, um, especially in light of the, uh, the concussion crisis of today. Yeah, I mean, they didn't know. You know, I mean, Plank, I mean, basically, they just didn't. It's like almost going back to the era of bare-knuckle fighting. I mean, they didn't know. They, uh, Doug Plank used to carry smelling salts in his waistband to revive himself. 
after he made big hits. He probably had 20, 30 concussions. He's fine now. But a lot of those guys were damaged, including Jim McMahon, who was a great Brigham Young quarterback, and um, and Dave Duerson, who you said killed himself. So the darkness of the game is the violence of the game. And right now they're trying to you know, change how people tackle, change the game. You see the result in the huge amounts of points scored because the defense can't hit like they used to, but it's so much part of football. It's not like the hitting is something that goes on in football. It is football. And before all the offense, before all the points, if you go back in the history of the game, there was the hitting. That's really what it's about. Hmm. And you talk about how you're conflicted. You, you don't know. You're, you're conflicted about letting your boys play. Uh, I mean, I, as you get older... You know, when you're a kid, you really enjoy things. And one of the reasons you can enjoy them so much is you don't know so much. You're kind of stupid. And that allows you to enjoy things. When you get older, you see your own kids and go around and interview some of these guys. You have to really say, you know, what am I watching? Am I watching a big hit or am I watching the end of someone's life? You know, and I do remember that when I was a kid, uh, Daryl Stingley, I don't know if you remember that, but Jack Tatum was a great safety for the Oakland Raiders. And in a preseason game, he hit the wide receiver, Daryl Stingley, who was a New England Patriots receiver, and, uh, and he was, broke his back and paralyzed. And that was just terrifying. I mean, and that's the thing about football. You'll see how intense football is with um, prayers how much religion is part of the game, uh, how quiet both sidelines get when someone goes down, because those guys know. I mean, they're just one play away from basically ending their lives. And you say that's what makes football more tense than other sports. The stakes are really high. I mean, in baseball, yeah, you can, I can get beamed. That's about the most dangerous thing that can happen. It does happen. You know, and hockey can be dangerous, but football these guys are so big, so fast, so strong, and hit each other with such force that every time they go out on the field, they're putting their entire life uh, on the line. And one thing I would do in interviewing old players is just say, how are you doing physically? And every one of them would just run off a catalog of surgeries. Dan Hampton, who was a Hall of Famer who played on the 85 Bears, was nicknamed the Danimal. He's had 14 knee operations. You know, Doug Plank has titanium shoulders. When you interview Mike Ditka, who was a great player before he was a great coach, and you get up, he gets up to shake your hand. It takes him about a minute just to get up. So these guys are old, old warriors, and you know they show the effects of the game. And yet, you you say you'd love to watch nastier the better, love the big hits. I understand that. We had a program last week on concussions in high school ball here in Utah. Uh, and I told the story. I have a have a friend, um, lost touch with him now, but who's a bull rider, and uh, you know every season he had something broken ribs, you know whatever. I notice now when I watch the sport, a lot of them are wearing helmets. Yeah, and I'm conflicted well, by the fact that that sort of lessens the sport for me. Well, it's like ice hockey. When I was a kid in the NHL, they didn't wear helmets, and you could really see them, and you, you could really identify with them. And football is interesting because they're completely armored, you know. And it's been, from the beginning. I think the first face mask was Paul Brown invented the first face mask to protect the quarterback Otto Graham, who'd broken his nose and his jaw, and he wanted him to play. And uh, people grabbed and held the face mask around. And the story was Paul Brown had an alternate face mask ready that was made entirely of razor blades, so people wouldn't grab it. Wow. You know, so one way to tell the history of football is just to look at the equipment. The Bears had the last player who played without a helmet. His name was Dick Plasman, and Virginia McCaskey, Virginia Hallis McCaskey, George Hallis's daughter, in her 90s, still controls the team. One of the first games she saw at Wrigley Field was Dick Plasman flew into the dugout and was carried away in a stretcher, unconscious, all wrapped up in bloody gauze, and she thought she'd actually seen him die. So as violent as the game has become, Actually, the fact is, people didn't go back and look at the guys who played in the 30s and the 40s uh, to see what happened to them later in their life. They were probably as bad off as the guys now. No one really cared. It was They came from these little towns with the alter, alternative to playing football and maybe ending up messed up at the end of their life was to working in a coal mine and maybe dying at age 50 from black lung disease. So, um, And the fact is that the violence is part of the game, but it's part of like all of our sports. And whenever you try to get at, get it out of one game, and it just appears in another game, there's some human need for it, you know. And it's kind of an alternative to war in a way. So, uh, but you look at the ultimate fighting, which did not exist when I was a kid. And as boxing is diminished and games become safer, the violence comes out somewhere. 
What What do you think that says about us? Is this American? Is it universal? What uh, What do you think that says about us? I think it's universal. I think that um, you know some part of us is violent and likes, to, and we it's like the better angels in a way. What's interesting about football? Why it, I think it is the greatest game, and this was the greatest team, is because it's both. It's incredibly brutal and violent, and it's also the most intellectual and the brainiest game that we have. It really is what Doug Plank called tackle chess. Mm. So what I thought was so interesting about the history of the Bears is the Bears had both. George Hallis invented the modern, pass-heavy, beautiful, ballet-like offense. They had Gail Sayers, who was the most beautiful runner people had ever seen, but they also had Dick Butkus, who was the most uh, animalistic, hardest hitter maybe in the history of the league. And then in the 85 Bears, you get Walter Sweetness Peyton, who's both. He's like the combination of the brutal and the beautiful, and that makes football almost impossible to turn away from, for me anyway. I wonder if you've made that assertion, uh, the, the football, the most intellectual game, to a, to a baseball fan. Uh, I'm, I'm well, sure you get baseball, pushback. It, baseball, look, baseball now, I love baseball, but baseball today in 2013 really isn't all that different from baseball in 1913. It's the same game. Football is constantly evolving because you have different coaches that have different ideologies of how to play. You know, so, and it really is a coach's game. Baseball is really a player's game. The manager makes decisions. The manager changes, you know, sets the lineup and takes pitchers out. But in football, it's planned like a general plans of war. I mean, there's a theory, there's a game plan, and you see different ideologies clash. That's what was – the 85 Bears were a defensive team with this ideology about overloading and terrifying the other side, blitzing and blitzing again. Buddy Ryan, who was a defensive coach, would blitz six, seven times in a row, which no one had done. And they went into San Francisco and they played Bill Walsh's and Joe Montana's 49ers, who were a team that was the West Coast offense that had an idea about opening up the game and passing in every play. And when they came to war, it was like two clashing ideologies meeting. It was fantastic. Hmm. We're talking with Rich Cohen. He's author most recently of Monsters, the 1985 Chicago Bears and the Wild Heart of Football. Rich Cohen is a New York Times bestselling author, and uh, he grew up in Chicago, uh, loving the Bears, still loves the Bears. He says 1985 Bears are uh, the the best uh, NFL team ever over one season, and uh, that they uh, are an iconic team, first NFL team to cross over to become pop stars and that that marks the beginning of the modern game. We'll talk a little bit more about the future of the modern NFL, especially as a result of the concussion crisis, and we'll get to talking about some of these colorful characters. Mike Ditka, of course, Jim McMahon, who we in Utah know as quarterback for BYU before he went on to become an icon with the, with the Bears. More following break. What drives someone to hike to the North Pole or row across the ocean alone? I was doing something, you know, I was out there on the edge, stepping into ground where nobody had ever been before, you know, exploring. I'm Guy Raz. On the next TED Radio Hour, we're taking you to the edge. To the edge, that sounds uh, tailored for me. From NPR. Coming up next at 10 on Utah Public Radio. The Be Well Moment is made possible by the USU Department of Human Resources Wellness Program at usu.edu hr. In addition to the 25 million people in this country who have been diagnosed with diabetes or who have it but don't yet know that they do, an estimated 79 million people have entered the danger zone known as pre-diabetes. Their blood glucose levels are higher than normal but have not yet risen to the level at which they would indicate a diagnosis of diabetes. In people with prediabetes, the pancreas may not be working as efficiently as it once did, or the body may be gradually building a resistance to the insulin it produces so that the hormone can't do as good a job of clearing glucose from the bloodstream. The good news is that type 2 diabetes is preventable. Diabetes prevention is as basic as eating more healthfully, becoming more physically active, and losing a few extra pounds, and it's never too late to start. This is Lisa for the Be Well program at Utah State University. Be well, Utah. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We're talking with Rich Cohen, New York Times bestselling author and author most recently of Monsters, the 1985 Chicago Bears and the Wild Heart of Football. 
Uh, Rich Cohen says this is the first NFL team to really cross over to become pop stars. Their ascent marks the beginning of the modern game. We've been talking about history of the NFL. We'll talk a little bit more about that and the future of the game, especially with regard to the concussion crisis. Rich Cohen says that uh, the 1985 Bears are at the center of the concussion crisis. No defense was nastier. None knocked out more quarterbacks. And this uh, team had Dave Duerson. Uh, he was the player who, fearing he had chronic traumatic encephalitis, uh, encephalopathy, uh, shot himself in the chest two years ago. Jim McMahon also has become a head trauma poster boy. And we'll talk about the question, what happens to the legacy of a team built around the knockout blow and the values of the game are rewritten. Rich Cohen, I want to go back to um, these earlier teams, earlier uh, NFL. You say that uh, a lot of these players came out of it was either uh, go to work in the coal mine or NFL. And obviously NFL, despite its violence or maybe because of it, was a better job. Um, And uh, but... But the people weren't focused on the fact that uh, some of these gentlemen post-NFL uh, career were uh, foggy or angry and that embarrassed themselves at the reunion luncheons and, and such. It's only recently we've been, been focusing on, on this, and it's probably a legacy of the game that's been there before. Yeah, I mean, I think that if you go back and look at the guys who played on the 38 Bears when they were in their 50s and 60s, you probably would have found a lot of the same you know, problems. And um, the fact is that if you look, I have a chapter in the book about it, about the early NFL, because it's, it's fascinating, because it's an older, different America. It's much tougher America in a way. And the teams in the NFL were factory teams that became very good. And they became very good because the factory owners had become rivalrous with another factory owner. They start bringing in ringers, and they become good enough to enter the NFL. So you had, you know, like Moline Tractor, the Decatur Staley's is what the Bears played as originally. The Rockford uh, Independents, the Hammond Pros, the Canton Bulldogs, Jim Thorpe. I mean, those were the teams, if you go back and look at who won the early championships, and only of, those, of that era team, only Green Bay remains. And they've almost been left in the league, you know, now they're sound and everything, but intentionally as a reminder to where the league really starts. The league doesn't start with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. It starts with, with the Moline Tractor Company. And that was a violent era and a violent age. They played with very little protection, and they played mostly for fun, you know. And um, what's evolved from that is such an unbelievable business. I think George Hallis got the Bears franchise for $100, and I think he didn't even pay it. He had an IOU, and he never paid it. And that team is worth now over a billion dollars. And that could not even be conceived of by Hallis at the time. So now that everyone makes more money and knows more, we're, we're a lot more aware of, of what's going on. And, and there's this sudden realization that, oh, my God, this is a very, very uh, dangerous game. And, and the 85 Bears played in a dangerous way, which was they played by instilling fear in their opponents. I interviewed uh, Danny White, who's a great quarterback for the Cowboys, an all-pro quarterback, and the Bears beat the Cowboys in 85, 44 to nothing. You don't really see that much anymore. And they knocked Danny White unconscious twice in that game. And he told me that it was the only time in his career that his only thought was, get rid of the ball as fast as I can. That was it. He wasn't thinking of scoring or getting a first down. He was thinking, just get this ball out of my hands. I'd hand it off, throw it away, do something. Because as long as I am holding it, I'm dead man. So is that the principal way that the 1985 Bears are the beginnings of the modern league? It no, I think they're the beginning of the modern league in that they had such outsized personalities, such characters, and they played with such incredible joy uh, that they crossed over and they became pop stars. And then they made the Super Bowl shuffle. Yeah. And the Super Bowl shuffle is a thing. I mean, it's unbelievable. I always say I think that the guy who you know invented penicillin didn't win the Nobel Prize, but the Super Bowl shuffle got nominated for a Grammy. You know, it became a gold record. It was, and it's, and it's, and it, and it branded in a very modern kind of uh, media age kind of way. It branded each player who was in that in the way, and it explained the team the way the introduction to the Brady Bunch theme song explains the show. Mm. You know, so you had Jim McMahon on the cover of uh, Rolling Stone. You had Walter Payton and the Fridge on the cover of Time magazine. You just don't really see that much anymore where they became huge stars. The audience for the Monday night football game where the Bears played the Dolphins was the largest in history because people wanted to see these guys because they knew them. They had become 
uh, personalities. And even now, I talk, I tell people about this book who don't care about football at all. They immediately say the fridge. Yeah, you remember the fridge. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. So it's 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 really where they became you know personalities, and they became kind of the individual players came became kind of bigger than the game itself. And now every time anybody makes a sack or makes a play, they do like a dance. It's, that sort of starts at the '85 Bears, I think. And you, as a 17-year-old, or you you somehow got tickets to the Super Bowl. I my father, through a business associate, handed him two tickets late that week. Uh, before the Super Bowl, and he gave them to me because I was a Bears fanatic, and I tried to get myself down there, and all the flights were booked and all the trains were booked. I wanted to drive. I was 17. My parents would not let me drive from Chicago to New Orleans. So my mother heard of a woman who worked in her office who uh, knew of a bunch of Bears fans who chartered a plane, and they had some empty seats, and they gave them to me and a friend of mine. And we show up expecting just a bunch of regular fans. And what we got was a plane load full of super fans, like on Saturday Night Live, you know, guys with big mustaches and uh, talking about sausage and uh, wearing hats and dressed like Ditka and Ditka jerseys. And they'd been, by the time we got on the plane, I think some of them had already been drinking for five or six hours. And they wouldn't sit down when we took off, and they wouldn't. The pilot came out of the cockpit to yell at them, and they threw beer cans at them. And when we landed, Several of them were arrested, and they never made it to the Super Bowl. And I always thought I sort of have a responsibility to carry their Super Bowl dreams along with my own. And in a way, writing this book is a fruition of the debt I owe those poor, arrested super fans who never made it to the big game. <laughs> By the way, um, you're, you're calling the 1985 Bears the, the, the best team ever over a single season. There was one team that didn't lose a game, the 72 Dolphins. Right. Uh, why do you say the Bears are better? Well, the Bears not might not be the best offense ever. They actually had the second best offense in the league that year. Um, but they were the best defense. And even though they lost that one game, and they were probably the best team, even though they didn't lose, they lost that one game. And the reason is because when they really hit their stride, they it's like they'd cracked the code of football. I mean, it wasn't like they won close games. You know, yesterday there was a game where the Seattle Seahawks almost lost to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers who haven't won a game and they had to come back and barely win in overtime. The Bears completely trounced teams to the point where the teams didn't get a first down, where their collective yardage over the day was in the minus. They played the Giants in the playoffs, and I don't remember what the number was, but the Giants ended the day with like negative 16 yards. They knocked out quarterbacks. They knocked out two quarterbacks. Um, and in the playoffs, they didn't give up a single point. And, I mean, they, gave, they teams didn't even get into their territory. It was, it was a complete mismatch. It was like men against boys. And that I'd never seen before and I'd never seen since. And people who don't remember them as a great Super Bowl team, it's only because the Super Bowls we remember were great games. You know, Joe Montana and the drive going two minute going down the field to beat the Cincinnati Bengals. You know, Joe Namath squeaking past the, the Colts. But the Bears, that game against the New England Patriots was over within the first two or three possessions. They completely broke the will of that team and they won the game forty six to ten in the Super Bowl, and that actually makes it seem a lot closer than it was. If you just joined us, we're talking with Rich Cohen, author most recently of Monsters, the 1985 Chicago Bears and the Wild Heart of Football. You're welcome to join the conversation at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495, or you can join us at upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. So, Rich Cohen, uh, definitely you're a fan in the, in the truest sense of that word, fanatic. Uh, in fact, the uh, the roster of the 1985 uh, Bears is handwritten. I assume that's your your handwriting. Um, it, I don't know, probably from memory. Uh, but uh, so you you set out to go and interview these players some twenty five years on. There's there's a bit of a danger inherent there, isn't there? The the dream might be punctured. Yeah, but um, actually the the whole the whole reason I wrote this book was I was working on a magazine story, or that I thought I could write it. I was working on a magazine story, and I happened to talk to. Doug Plank. Doug Plank was known as the Human Missile, and him and Gary Fensick together, where safeties played side by side, were known as the Hitmen. And Doug Plank was one of the most vicious uh, hitters in the history of the Bears. And he was, you know, some people thought he was a late hitter. And I didn't know what I what to expect from the guy. And what I found was one of the smartest, most sensitive, and thoughtful and reflective people 
uh, I'd ever met. And that I spent days with him, and he explained football and professional sports in a way that made me understand it in a completely different way than I ever had. It made me see it from the inside and understand what makes a person a hitter and what makes a person a pro. And, and really, when I talked to him, I thought, this is a book, because he's explaining a game I think I know and making me see it for the first time. So really, my experience with the players started – because it was so good is why I wrote the book. And then I went around and I interviewed a lot of others. And I found that mostly, you know, when you interview pro athletes when they're playing, they're very bland. They seem not smart because they don't say anything interesting. But it's because they've been trained not to say anything interesting because if you make news, you're, you're making trouble and you're going to get basically drummed off the team. Um, but now, 25, 30 years later, uh, they've lived this intense experience and they're very smart because football, like I said, it's a very brainy game. And... Um, I found them to be some of the greatest, most interesting interviews I've ever done. And by talking to them, I thought, you know, you could write a book about what I think is the greatest team or certainly one of the greatest teams ever to play. And it could be like my father's favorite book was for his generation, and that was um, The Boys of Summer, which was about the 55 Brooklyn Dodgers and what happened to those guys after they played. And the Bears were similar, except they played a much more brutal game. But by telling their story, I thought you could tell the – a story that sort of stood for my whole generation and how we've gone from being kids to being grown-ups to getting older. And this is why I think you see so many books about sports, uh, you know, football, baseball, etc. It's life lessons. And one of the most interesting questions that you ask it's, uh, it has to do with human condition. What happens when you're 28 and you've already lived your dream? Yeah, well, that was that's a really interesting thing because these guys – are at the very pinnacle and the top of our society. A lot of them have been removed sort of from the general population from the time they showed skill on the football field. They've never had to really do anything for themselves. They've been taken care of. They've been told, uh, you know, when to eat, when to work out, when to show up, when to leave, when to go to sleep, all those things. And now suddenly they reach this incredible height. And then a couple years later, or maybe the next year, it's done. And they're suddenly shoved back into normal life, and they're expected to be a normal person, but they're not a normal person. And they've got to adjust. And I always compared it to, you know, Tom Wolfe wrote about those astronauts returning from uh, orbit back to Earth, and a lot of them had trouble because they had this radical change in perspective. And the same thing happens with these players, and some guys adjust very well, uh, like Doug Plank, who ended up uh, when the Bears were winning the Super Bowl, he owned part of a Burger King and was working in the ki- back of a Burger King. He said, if you want to not feel sorry for yourself, work in a fast food restaurant. You don't have time to feel anything, you know. And um, and then, you know, all the way down, and, and it became very successful, ended up owning 17 Burger Kings. And, and, and incredible story, all the way to Mike Richardson, who was a cornerback on that team who never could adjust, wound up with a drug problem and wound up, going to prison. So you see all the way these different people adjust to extremely stressful situations. And the uh, you could you could say that about uh, I guess athletes in in many major sports. Football has a special legacy in that you you talked about Mike Dicka taking him, you know, 2 minutes to get up out of his chair yeah. and, and all the concussion problems uh, people living in fog. Mike Webster, you know, because became a poster boy. Uh, tell me about Dave Duerson. Dave Duerson was uh Went to Notre Dame. He was a really smart football player, really good football player. He was a, he was a safety. Ultimately, I believe he took uh, the position that um, Doug Plank had played. Plank's career ended with a spinal concussion, you know, so it just shows you he was 27, I think. And Dewerson took that spot, and he was a all-pro, and he was a great, great player. He had a, a great career, ended up leaving the the Bears. And when he got older, he was very successful in business and um, very successful working with the Players Union. And, and, uh, and then he started to be confused. You know, uh, He couldn't find his way back home from the store. He started to have mood swings. His personality started to change. And whatever it was inside of him that is the real Dave Dewerson recognized this and was incredibly upset. You know, He didn't like how he was acting. He didn't like what was going on with him. And um, Around that time, news started to come out about this discovery that a lot of these old players had this disease you mentioned called CTE. And it's not just a result of the big hits. It's a result of a lot of little hits. Maybe that you start 
uh, absorbing when you're 10 years old and playing Pop Warner football, repetitive low-impact hits to the head. Uh, these guys' brains, after they die, look like you know a man with Alzheimer's 50 years older than them. It's a real nightmare, and Dewerson started to believe he had this and was sure he had it and uh, wrote a text message to his family explaining that he was killing himself because he believed he had this disease and he was shooting himself in the chest so that his brain could be studied to see if he had the disease and help other people. And he, and he was, uh, it did in fact have a really bad case of this disease. So one of, the pro, one of the really bad things about the disease is you can't know for sure if you have it until there's an autopsy. So in addition to having it, there's the fear of, do I have it? Yeah, we, we, in this program I mentioned before, we did a the program based off a League of Denial, a special screening last week, and, and uh, we did this program focusing on high school sports. We played a couple of clips from uh, Steve Young. He talks about, he, I think he uses the word insidious. You, you don't know you have it until it's too late. And that he, he worries about not the big hit, but the, the repeated little concussions well, that, that maybe you don't know about. That's the real challenge football has, to, because you can get rid of, and they've already started to, you can, the, the way the Bears hit in 85 is now banned. I mean, Doug, Doug Plank told me his entire career is a, would be a penalty now. So basically the big knockout blow that a guy like uh, Wilbur Marshall delivered to the quarterback Joe Ferguson at the end of the 85 season that knocked him out, uh, that's now big. It's a big enough penalty. You get suspended. Guys don't do it. And if you watch tonight, the Bears are playing the Packers on Monday Night Football. Watch when the guys come around and they have a clean shot at the quarterback. They don't take him out like they used to. That's already changed. They'll just drag him down to the ground. And so that can be reformed. The problem is that the, the guys, the doctors who I've talked to too, they said they think the real danger is just many, many, many low-impact hits over a course of years. And you know this from your own experience. If you ever, like, punt, have someone punch you in the arm very softly ten times, it doesn't hurt. But if they do it a hundred times, it starts to kill, you know. And this steady impact on the brain actually starts to degenerate the brain. And how do you get that out of the game? Because, like I said, going back to the early days of the coal mining towns and everything else, that is the game. I mean, the game is violence uh, put into a kind of order. So while you can reform hockey and play a different kind of hockey, which we see in the Olympics, by the way, you can't really change football. It's the essence of the thing. The whole point of it is, is physical contact, hitting and getting hit. And the guys who are great at it actually like getting hit. Now, you write that um, you recognize the game is is will have to change it in some form. You're right. As much as I love the game, I love Dave Dewerson more. Uh, so how how is the game going to change, given that violence is inherent in the game? I think what's ultimately going to have to happen is you're going to have to be able to not have any contact uh, with the head. So even when guys are lined up and they go to block each other, they can't. They're going to have to have their heads up. I don't know exactly how it's going to happen, but if you really wanted to make football safe, what you'd do is you'd go back to no helmets. You know, the helmets started with the leather helmets, but before that there were no helmets. And when you have no helmet, it's very clear that your head is fragile and you have to protect your head and you have to protect other people's heads. Because if you hit head to head, you could die. And that's still the truth. So putting the helmet on gave people this sense that they were invincible and that their head couldn't be hurt, and it was, it was wrong. It was not true. Their head's almost just as uh, vulnerable as having no helmet, but the perception is it's invulnerable. So almost you have to go back to this idea that the head really is something you've got to watch out for your head. You have to watch out for other people's heads. Then those injuries would happen, but they'd be more like when two guys go up for a ball in basketball and they, they crack heads. You know, it's, it's, it's a more of a rarity, and it's inadvertent, and it's an accident. Or, or soccer when you go for a header, I guess. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, Rich Cohen is our guest. He's author most recently of Monsters, the 1985 Chicago Bears and the Wild Heart of Football. We're talking about violence inherent in uh, what, what essentially is our national pastime. Uh, football is king. We've been talking about what that says about us as a people and uh, what's the, what the future of the game is. Uh, Rich Cohen says 1985 Bears were the uh, first NFL team to really cross over to become pop stars, and that was the beginning of the modern game. Uh, we're going to take another break. When we come back, I'll have uh, Rich Cohen uh, tell me about Jim McMahon. We're interested, of course, special interest here in Utah. He's a former BYU quarterback. More following the break. 
The Utah Division of Arts and Museums announces the 2013 winners of the 55th Annual Utah Original Writing Competition. Selected for more than 200 entries received this year, 21 writers in seven categories will receive awards. Utah Public Radio would like to acknowledge Kelly J.P. Lindbergh of Layton for winning first place in the Young Adult Book category for her work, Wink, A Mixed Up Night's Dream. Congratulations, Kelly! Programming on Utah Public Radio was made possible in part by our members and Sunflower Hill Inn, a historic ranch house and garden cottage located three blocks from downtown Moab, offering 12 guest rooms with queen-size beds, private baths, hot tub, and seasonal outdoor pool. Information is at sunflowerhill.com. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking about the 1985 Chicago Bears. The book is Monsters, and uh, the author is Rich Cohen. Uh, He says the 1985 Chicago Bears were more than a football team, the first uh, NFL team to really cross over, become pop stars, and they mark the beginning of the modern game. They're also the center of the concussion crisis, and he asked a very interesting question we've been addressing. What happens to the legacy of a team built around the knockout blow when the values of the game are rewritten? We're talking about the concussion crisis, a lot more awareness of uh, after effects after your career, Uh, some of them just horrible, of, uh, of repeated hits to the head. And uh, we are talking with Rich Cohen. Another uh, 10 or 15 minutes left, and you're welcome to join us at 1-800-826-1495 or at upraxis at gmail.com. So, Rich Cohen, I, I well remember uh, Jim McMahon, uh, BYU quarterback. Uh, I remember him as a very good quarterback and colorful. Uh, how, did, how did you find him when you went and uh, interviewed him? Um, well, first of all, I found the same of him as a player uh, in Chicago. He was like color in a black and white world. You know, he was just uh, very cool, very sort of out there on his own. Sort of, he was kind of like a hero for for every kid in Chicago. He was like Joe Namath must have been the decade before. I mean, and um, he had this way of changing Mike Ditka's plays, calling audibles, doing crazy things like a guy in a movie and winning games. And um, I met him when I was 17 years old at Pat O'Brien's on Bourbon, off of Bourbon Street, New Orleans, where I was a kid drinking hurricanes. And uh, I always say one of us is wearing a McMahon jersey, and it wasn't him, <laughs> you know. And then I, and, and he was really nice to me as a kid. I mean, I talked to him for five minutes. And then I went back, you know, and met him a couple years ago. And I was nervous to meet him because I'd heard, you know, he's part of this concussion lawsuit, and I'd heard that he sort of was confused and lost in the world. And that might be true. I mean, it's it's a short-term memory issue, but the day, the time I spent with him was fantastic. I mean, he was older, but he was still clearly the punky QB. And uh, he told me, you know, I asked him everything you'd want to ask as a kid, and he told me stories, told me stories about what it's like to play, he told me stories about injuries. He talked about his life. He talked about BYU. He talked about George Hallis. I mean, think about it. He, when McMahon negotiated his first contract, McMahon got paid $60,000 his rookie year and negotiated that contract with George Hallis himself. George Hallis, who, you know, had himself stripped the ball from Jim Thorpe at a game in 1922 and run 90 yards for a touchdown. So in that one room, you have the entire history of football. And um, for me, you know, I met a guy the other night who said, in journalism school, they tell us not to interview our heroes. And I said, well, I'm glad I didn't go to journalism school. <laughs> An amazing opportunity. What uh, was Jim McMahon different from from the way you idolized him growing up? No, not really. I mean, he always was sort of cantankerous with the press and nice to the fans. And and he had this always always was kind of had a very sort of a cynical attitude, like a Humphrey Bogart kind of attitude. And he still did. And that was crucial with the Bears because the Bears coach was Mike Ditka. And Mike Ditka is a really kind of a hard ass. And he, if a quarterback made a mistake, he would just destroy him publicly. And that caused, you know, Mike Tomczak, a Bears quarterback, actually had to seek psychiatric help after dealing with Ditka. And quarterbacks couldn't produce for him because quarterback is sort of riding his own confidence. A quarterback is like a kind of an artist in the way he plays that game. And McMahon, for whatever reason, didn't care. He really did not care about anything. And um, one, one of the guy, the guy who was his roommate uh, for a lot of time, a guy, Kurt Becker, who was a guard, had a line that I always think of when I think about McMahon. He said, some people just pretend they're crazy, but that guy actually is crazy. You know? <laughs> and he, uh, 
he after the Bears won in '85. This had a lot to do with why the Bears didn't repeat. Um, he was interviewed. I, on a, I might have been ESPN if ESPN exists, and they asked him, which during the draft, what position the Bears should draft for, and McMahon said owner. <laughs> and that was sort of, you know, the owner got so pissed off that eventually McMahon was traded. And the Bears were always great on defense. They had trouble with offense, and it really took McMahon's creativity to make them a great team. And without him, they could never win. What's what's he up to these days? How's he how's he done post football? You know, it's funny. I went back. He wrote. He actually wrote uh, an autobiography when he's 26. That's really something. It's amazing. And in it, he said his dream when he retired was to do nothing but go around and play golf. And he's actually a guy that's basically lived his dream. He doesn't really do anything. He plays golf. He had a golf tournament here. Uh, in, uh, it was in Wisconsin called the Barefoot Classic, where to qualify, you just had to play without shoes. You know? and, um, and he was lucky. You know? He had a really good agent, a guy named Steve Zucker, who really cared about him. And he told Zucker what he wanted, and Zucker was careful. Jim was careful. And McMahon, unlike a lot of these guys, you know, for all his health problems, he's got money, and he's okay. You know, uh, but some guys end up, you know, destitute. The money comes fast, goes faster. They're out of the game. They're physically beat up. The glory's in the past, and they're struggling to survive. And I, I think there's a, that's part of negotiation with the NFL, NFL Player Association. How do you help these, you know, guys? Yeah, well, uh, the transition, you know, it's 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 a situation. I kind of believe that most people, you put them in the same situation, they're going to behave the same way. So you kind of condescend and look down on people and say, well, if I had that money, I wouldn't blah, blah, blah. If you put anybody in the same situation, 90% of them will, the same thing will happen. That's just sort of what I believe. There are some outliers or whatever. So you put somebody in that situation, it's like a complete, uh, it's like a mind game. You know, they, they are told they're so important. They're given so much, so young, they're not ready for it. And then it's all taken away. You know, they go from everything to nothing in a course of a few months. And a lot of guys have a tough time adjusting to it. McMahon, except for his physical problems, McMahon hasn't because McMahon is a super smart guy. And he understands a lot of what people say to him and the good things they say to him about him are as unreal as the bad things they'd say about him. It is interesting, this question. I don't know if you posed it directly to these these men. What you know? What do you what do you do when you've lived your dream and uh, and that's all over in your twenties? Yeah, well, Gary Fensick was really interesting about it. Gary Fensick, who was safety on that team, and and really he went to Yale. You know, he's like an unusual kind of football player. And um, he talked about a kid coming up to him in the supermarket a few years after he retired and saying, "Didn't you used to be Gary Fensick?" You know, and how hard that is. And um, I think the guys. Doug Plank has a whole philosophy of this, which is in the book, and actually has changed my life because his philosophy of life is good for everybody. And basically, Doug Plank believes about working really hard and putting good things out in the world. And what he did from the moment he retired was sort of buried himself in work. That was his way of dealing with it. And he emerged after 10 or 15 years of work as a new kind of person with a new kind of life post-NFL. And I think that that really the ones who did successful found a way to work often outside the game, you know, uh, in some other line. So uh, Emery Moorhead was another guy who really adjusted well, who was a tight end for the Bears, played at uh, Colorado, and, um, you know, is, is now like a really successful real estate guy in Chicago. I suppose you'd have to have a, if you have a good foundation coming in through that experience in your 20s, you'd, Probably stand in better stead coming out. It's, it's well, not only like that. The it. guys who succeed a post NFL career, you know that they're remarkable because it's an impossible situation for everybody. So a guy like Walter Payton, he had a lot of trouble, you know, uh, because he. And as Fensick said, he said, you know, when you're playing pro football, you're playing football every week. You get an answer. You get a definitive. You win or you lose. And and you're part of a team and you're part of this big thing. That's bigger than you. And to go from that to, well, the meeting's been delayed. Oh, we'll wait a couple weeks and we'll know. That, even that, forgetting all the adulation, just the sense of work and result and the pattern of it and the seasons of it, getting beyond that is really, really hard. And, uh, you know, it takes an exceptional person to do it. Tell me about Mike Ditka. You, you, in an interview I was reading with you, the uh, interviewer was pointing out that Ditka sort of is a – is a, is a parody of him of, of himself. He, he, Ditka, you can't get beyond Ditka because that's well. Ditka turned being Ditka into a career. Yeah, and I always thought if anybody could 
be pissed off at Mike Ditka. It's Dick Butkus. Because remember, Dick Butkus used to do the Miller Lite ads. And Dick Butkus played a gym teacher in a show about kids. Ditka has all those roles now. He's got a total corner on that market of the scary guy with the heart of gold, you know? And um, what people don't remember is when Ditka showed up as a coach in – he was 44. So he's a young coach. And he was, had been a great player but a violent player, you know, and, and a wild man you know, who would go out drinking and carousing in Chicago. And he got booted from the Bears when he said that George Hallis, the owner, was so cheap that he throwed around nickels like they were manhole covers. You know, that was the line that got him basically banished from Chicago. And when he came, the newspaper guys were like, this is the most insane hire in the world. This guy's out of control. He's completely nuts, you know. And you really saw that. And the press conferences Ditka would have were just great theater in Chicago where he would just go through and – basically shout at the reporters. And there was once where they asked him, you know, what was wrong with the Bears? What, why did the team lose? And he said, you saw it. We stink. And guys, coaches don't act like that anymore. Mm. It was a very colorful time. It's why they were so exciting to watch. He came out of this uh, sort of this Midwest NFL country, didn't he? His father was uh, worked in a steel mill. He's from Aliquippa, Pennsylvania. He's from the heart of it. You know, if you look, look at the quarterbacks from that part of the country where the game is really from, it's unbelievable. It's Dan Marino, uh, Johnny Unitas. I mean, and, and Ditka came from Aliquippa, which is now a completely depressed town. I went back there when working on the book. Every store there is bordered up. There's a big steel mill that closed in the early 80s. And Ditka's father was a union boss at this steel mill and worked as a burner, which is he worked on a railroad that went through the mill and Ditka was a huge athletic star uh, coming out of Aliquippa High School and won a state championship and then went to Pitt. An interesting little footnote is Ditka chose Pitt over Penn because Pitt had a better pre-dental program. Ditka wanted to be a dentist after he played college football. Amazing. Um, Ditka has recently been in the news for political comments. He's not a big fan of President Obama. You know, it's funny. Ditka was going to run for that seat against Obama that really opened the door for Obama's political career. Uh, Ditka was going to run uh, as a Republican. And ultimately, um, you know, that was uh, Alan Keyes, who wasn't even from Chicago, flew in for the election round. It was just a ridiculous. There was like an unchallenged election. And I always thought Ditka realized he didn't have the right temperament for the Senate unless you go back to the pre-Civil War days and people were hitting each other with canes and stuff, you know. And um <clears throat> He recently said uh, that he wished he had run because he could have prevented Obama from being president. Now, a couple of years ago, I went to the White House when the 85 Bears got their, finally got their White House visit 25 years after they won the Super Bowl. They originally were going to visit the White House, but the space shuttle blew up the day they were going to visit. So Obama, who actually in Chicago worked out at the gym with a couple of those old Bears, invited them back, and Ditka was there. And at that event, he was you know, so friendly with Obama, put his arm around him, said, we love him. He's one of our guys and gave him a jersey. So between you'd have to go look at what happened politically between two years ago and now to to turn Ditka around on that. Interesting. I just have uh, uh, two or three minutes left. I wanted to um, end with your your trip to Canton, Ohio, uh, the the Hall of Fame. And yeah. uh, you, you quote, you said, I compare the mood in this room where grown men in their jerseys wander among stone heads, somber, serious, even a little sad, to the mood of uh, national memorials. That's what it felt. It felt to me like going to the Lincoln Memorial or something. It was so serious. It was almost holy. It was kind of a secular religion because the game has become so important and, and the teams kind of their games replace nations at war in a way, in, in, the, in the sort of venting role I think it has for people's lives. They're, those guys stand for us, and the violence of the game and how they react to violence sort of shows uh, people how they should react you know, in stressful situations. People love to see a quarterback that gets pummeled and then get back up and score. It's basically the human spirit at its best, or that's how it seems. And here's the sort of place it comes from. And here's the immortal men, almost like, you know, the Pantheon or the Parthenon. And um, I just found it really wild. And it's the last thing, one of the last things in the country where the audiences get smaller and smaller and each people watch their own station and their own shows that everybody watches. Everybody watches the Super Bowl or is near someone who's watching the Super Bowl. 
But you uh, you remain hopeful that the game will adapt. You 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 talk to the old timers, and they they say the game they knew is already gone. That's a running theme for you know any right. Old well, they described to. it to me as basketball on on the grass. They don't. I mean, the Bears always going back to the beginning were defined by their defense. That's the team of. Bronco Nagurski and Dick Butkus and Mike Singletary and Brian Erlacher. So the idea that you have a Bears team giving up 40 points, which they did the other day to the Redskins, it just makes these guys sick. And, and that's one of the reasons for that is the rules, which make, you know, you can't touch a receiver. So it's very hard to stop them. And you sort of say to these guys, you know what the truth is, though? Things are always changing. In 1905, 17 college football players died in this country. And uh, on the field, and they, they, the game was going to be banned, and Teddy Roosevelt called college uh, coaches all to the White House, and he said, you've got to change the game. And what they did was they opened up the game to the pass, which didn't really exist, and to get the players wider apart to protect them, and the result was a better game. And my hope is that these new rules eventually will evolve, people will adapt to it, and the end result is you will get a better game. You have an interesting scene at, uh, at Canton. You, you look out and you um out on the field and you you say you and your you know you probably would have been playing out there as a kid if if you were a kid you see some kids out there it's a nice scene and then you realize they're playing soccer yeah i mean soccer just didn't exist when i I mean it existed but when i grew up no one played soccer you played hockey you played football you played baseball and just flying into chicago the other day looking out out the plane i because i now live in connecticut i saw more soccer fields than football fields and I really do think that's the real threat to football. It's the combination of, uh, you know, the violence and the fear of what happens to kids with the rise of soccer. That's really where the audience could go. And I love football. I think football is a better game than soccer. I like to watch it more. Uh, I like to play it more. And it's an American game. It only really exists here, and it grew out of our own history, and I hope they find a way to preserve it. We'll end there. Uh, Rich Cohen is author most recently of Monsters, the 1985 Chicago Bears and the Wild Heart of Football, uh, just out. Uh, Rich Cohen is a a New York Times bestselling author, and uh, we thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me back. And uh, we, of course, have Access Utah coming up uh, tomorrow, and uh, we have a, a book on the history of paper on Wednesday. Join us for that as well. For producers uh, Katie Swain and uh, Bennett Purser, I'm Tom Williams. Thanks so much for listening today. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan. Now open Monday through Saturday until 2 with a changing menu of a specialty salad, French breakfast pastries with local seasonal fruits, and lunch sandwiches. Being mixed race and also living in a household with two religions, I come from many different backgrounds, and I'm very proud of this, but also people try to categorize me or put me into a box and try to limit me to one of these backgrounds, but I I want to be regarded as all of them. Meet this brilliant young marimba player who defies categorization when you join me, Christopher O'Reilly, for this week's From the Top. Friday at 2 on Utah Public Radio. This is Shalane Smith-Needham of Utah Public Radio. Thank you for supporting our fall membership campaign. Your membership made a difference. You helped us meet our goal of $80,000 and receive an additional gift of $5,000 from Rocky Mountain Power. Thanks from all of us at Utah Public Radio. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 89.5 Logan, KUSK HD1 88.5 Vernal, KUSL HD1 89.3 Richfield, KUST HD1 88.7 Moab, and KUSU FM HD1 91.5 Logan. Mm-hmm.